Well, good morning. Um, we're finally in Philippians chapter 2. I I don't know if anyone's wondered about my plan. <laughs> um, you know, when I've done this before for stretches of time, I've typically just gone through a small book like Philippians. Um, so we'll finish it out. I don't know how many weeks. I'll probably spend some time mapping that out, but... Um, probably move a little faster than we have so far, but, um, you know, maybe about a half a chapter a week, which would get us about um, five more weeks or so. So um, if there's anything in particular you'd like to, you know, me to speak on or to address or any questions that arise um, as we go through this, just let me know. I'd I'd be more than happy to to chat with you. but today we're going to cover Philippians 2, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So I think I'll just read it first to start. By the way, maybe my favorite, if that's okay to say, like my favorite, I, I can't remember when I like ran across this the first time, probably in high school or something. And uh, it's been a passage that has been of particular interest to me for, uh, wow. Since high school, I won't tell you how long that's been, but for a while. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort provided by love and fellowship in the spirit and affection or mercy, complete my joy and be of the same mind by having the same love, being united in spirit and having one purpose. Instead of being motivated by selfish ambition or vanity, each of you should, in humility, be moved to treat one another as more important than yourself. Each of you should be concerned not only about your own interests, but about the interests of others as well. You should have the same attitude toward one another that Christ Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not, rec- did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking on the form of a slave, by looking like other men, and by sharing in human nature. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As a result, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What do you believe? What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about the Holy Spirit? What do you believe about the Bible and the church and the sacraments? What if I handed out right now pen and paper and asked you to write it down? How would you feel about that? Nervous? Speechless? Maybe confident. But now I ask you to hand in what you've written. I'm going to read each one out loud. And you can't remain anonymous. Don't worry, we're not really doing that. But what's your status now? Are you faking a fit of coughing and heading toward the exit? 
while it might be a good thing to do at some time, um, it's probably not best for this setting. I applied for a job at a church once and I had to write a fairly extensive personal doctrinal statement. I didn't get the job. <laughs> you see, I, like you, often have trouble putting what I believe into words. In this passage, Paul puts into words what the early church believed about Jesus, but his purpose wasn't to get a job or to have someone decide if he's suitable for membership in that church or merely to pass along theological information. In fact, verses 6 through 11 uh, especially contains some of the most theologically rich statements about Jesus in all of the New Testament. But that's not Paul's purpose primarily. He's not writing this to pass on theological information. At the church we attended in Nebraska before we moved uh, up to Alaska almost three years ago, every week during the service there was a portion of the service where everyone stood and recited a creed. It was usually the Apostles' Creed. Um, although we use some different things. And about once every couple of months, we would actually recite Philippians 6 through 11. It really is a foundational text for what the church believes about Jesus. But for Paul, it's so much more. It's really not a text at all. By that, I mean that it's not like a doctrinal statement or a statement of belief. I've spent a lot of time on church websites over the years. As soon as the internet was invented, and uh, as soon as we had it in our home, we had Juno dial-up for $4.99 a month. 1998, maybe? Somewhere in there. I was looking up churches, sometimes to find where friends were, or if some of my college friends were in ministry, um, sometimes to, to find information about well-known pastors and preachers. But especially when Amber and I were uh, moving, which we did a few times, or even thinking about moving, I would get on the internet, look up churches in the area, and the first thing I would do is read their statement of faith, their statement of belief, their doctrinal statement. If the church had a denomination with or had a name with a denomination in it, uh, a denomination with which I was fairly familiar um, you know, I, I never really found anything that interesting. I also found that non-denominational non churches um, like this one were, you know, not really that much different either. Never found anything shocking, surprising, or even that interesting. Um, some of the differences were in content. Some included things that others didn't, even though they might have both believed the same thing. You can't include everything in a doctrinal statement. Um, but you could tell these differences right away. Um, a lot of these differences had to do with topics like what the Holy Spirit's up to today. When is Jesus coming back? Uh, what's the role of women in the church today? Um, those sorts of things that in some ways contribute to the creation of, of uh, so many different denominations that we have. Um, you know, those were kind of the differences. But on things about God, Jesus, the Bible that there is a second coming, those sorts of things, um, all, you know, evangelical churches uh, pretty much agree, or they wouldn't be called evangelical churches. 
And all the differences, um, all of those are important topics, right? But some of those stuff is, is a little bit beyond the point. Some statements were longer than others. Some included topics that others didn't. Like some throw in there like how church government should run, how old the earth is, um, those sorts of issues. Some include it, some don't. But what strikes me when I now think about all the time I've spent reading doctrinal statements over the years is that they all use words. They all use text. They all assume that the reader can read and that the reader speaks the same language and shares a common enough vocabulary to be able to understand what the church is stating about their beliefs. These statements are usually constructed in the same order. Um, most of them begin with God, like the Trinity, or the Bible. Those seem to be the options as to what comes first. And then usually the last things come last. They have a lot in common. They have some differences, but they are all texts. They're all prose, and they all read a little bit like the summary of a research paper. None of them are poetry, at least I haven't seen any. None of them are written to really be recited, to be put to music, or to be memorized. But Paul here is doing something different. He's giving us this rich theological information, which we don't think he wrote. We think this predates Paul. Um, and there are a few of these in the New Testament. In addition to Philippians 2, Colossians uh, 1, um, 1 Timothy 3.16, um, 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, these are kind of scattered throughout the New Testament. These Maybe they're just even fragments of creeds or hymns, but they're essentially poetry. This is how the early church taught theology. If you remember from last week, I mentioned it's a largely illiterate society. So they're not going home with stacks of papers to read about Jesus. They're going home with a song. They're going home with a poem. They're teaching their kids like we do, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Even before my kid knows who Jesus is, even before my, my child can define what love is, right? Even before my kid really knows what the Bible is, they know the words to the song. They don't know the doctrinal statement of the church, right? They know the words to the song. This is how theological education was done and is still done in, to some extent in some traditions. This poetry that Paul quotes that he recites here, it contains statements of belief, but it's not a doctrinal statement intended to be buried somewhere in the website of the church in Philippi. You know, I use church doctrinal statements to see if I'm going to be comfortable, to see if I can get an idea of kind of what the tone is going to be in that church. Is it someplace where I, I can predict that maybe I'll feel okay or maybe someplace where I predict that 
maybe that's not the best place for me. Paul's not using it this way. It is rich theology, but it's a song. A song upon which Paul bases almost everything he said up to this point. I want to look at this passage from this perspective rather than getting bogged down in the details. To do this, we'll look at what Paul says, why he says it, and what it means for us, removed from the original context of this passage by almost 2,000 years and by a little over 5,000 miles. So what does Paul say? Paul continues to hammer home this point of unity. Remember that unity is our witness. I think it's interesting that this text is used a lot in like an apologetic contest where someone's trying to defend the faith to those who don't believe or don't agree. But here Paul says our apologetic, right? Our defense that what we believe is true is not our ability to explain the details of this poem, but in our unity. The watching world knows that our message, our gospel, is true not uh, through miraculous signs or celebrity endorsements, right? But through the unity we display in the midst of our diversity. And Paul has already hinted at the theological foundation of this unity, right? He, sh- he said over or several times that we share in the same spirit, that we all have the same Holy Spirit and that we need the Holy Spirit in each other's lives. And that's the only way to bring unity is we share in the same spirit. But now what he's going to do is root all of this in history, in a person, Jesus Christ. He begins by appealing to the mutual affection between him and the saints in Philippi. This is where we get these if statements, if there is any encouragement, if there is any comfort. He's not really saying these things are contingent, like maybe we can experience things. these things, maybe we can't. There's different ways of of expressing conditional statements. This would be best translated, since we do have encouragement, since we do have comfort. He's appealing, I think, to their mutual affection. You know, uh, he puts this in the context of make my joy complete. If we all share these blessings, if we all share this comfort and this hope and this consolation, He's appealing to their mutual affection. Make my joy complete. They have all partaken of these benefits, he mentions. But the benefits aren't to be enjoyed solely by individuals for individual satisfaction. They are instead an indication that we share in the same spirit. And because of this, we should stand in unity. So how? How does this relate to what he goes on to say? How does Paul want us to turn these shared blessings into unity? He says this is done in humility. And here, the humble person isn't the self-deprecating person. It isn't the person who deflects every compliment. I mean, you, you see this in, like, I see this with athletes a lot where, you know, they've won a game and they want to def- deflect all the praise. And, and like, that's, that's a good thing, I guess. Um, But that's not what humility is here for Paul. Here the humble person is not someone who deflects praise or someone who denies their own gifts or giftedness, their own abilities, 
But the humble person is someone who is first concerned about the interests of others. And Paul models this through and through. Remember, the very beginning of this book, he calls himself a slave and addresses his audience as saints. Paul models this posture. Remember, he knows that it would be better for him to die, to depart and be with Christ, but he knows that it's better for them that he stays. And to whatever extent he has choice in the matter, he says, I know that I will stay because it's better for you. He lets go of what's best for him and lives his life according to what's best for others. Remember, too, that he even rejoices in the preaching of the gospel that was done by those hoping to make his circumstances even worse. Those who were hoping to somehow add affliction to his chains. But because the gospel is being preached, he rejoices. Paul models humility. And now he's going to tell us where he gets it from. Jesus is the model for our humility. And thus the basis of our unity. Um, Paul here quotes one of the earliest hymns or creeds of the church. Already mentioned there are several of these. I won't mention those again. There are also several references in the New Testament to the singing of songs in the church. Um, Ephesians 5.16? Ephesians 5.19 is the one that immediately came to my mind. Right after Paul says, you know, don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. First um, Corinthians 14, 26, Acts 16, 25, James 5, 13 are just some other references to where the singing of songs and hymns are important in the New Testament. Again, prob- Paul probably didn't write it, although some believes that he some people believe that he added the part where it says that he was obedient even to death on a cross, right? Which would be a really powerful thing for Paul, a Jew, to add to this creed. Because we learn elsewhere that there's a very specific curse for a Jew to die from hanging on a tree. So maybe Paul did add that. It seems for those uh, you know, people who are smart enough and know the language well enough to, to, to identify like, like rhythm and meter and, and, and uh, sort of like rhyme. Um, they say that that little phrase sticks out like it doesn't belong. So maybe Paul's put that in. But he probably didn't write it. But it seems like it was something that was circulating through the church. Again, this is a song a poem that contains doctrine, a hymn that contains a statement of belief. And doctrine is important. At least I've spent enough money on theological education that I feel like I have to say that. (laughs) Doctrine is important. No, it really is. And so I do want to point out what he asserts about Jesus in this hymn, or what this hymn asserts about Jesus. First of all, I think the hymn speaks clearly to the deity of Jesus. It's a bit um, foggy in English translations, but he existed in the form of God. 
Sometimes when we think form, we think of a form as something that can change. So maybe Jesus isn't God, and now he sort of takes the form of God, but that's not what it means. Um, this word used for form is used for a, a, something that, that um, corresponds to reality. So Jesus really is God. He existed in the form of God. He is really God, or better... Um, John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word with, was with God, and the Word was God. A better understanding, even a better translation of that would be what God was, the Word was. We don't want to confuse Jesus with the Father, but everything that makes the Father God, Jesus possesses as well. Um, some like to use the word Jesus is divine, although we use, you know, like I passed some food back there on my way and that looked divine. So we use that word kind of loosely today. But what God is, Jesus is. Second, the hymn speaks to the humanity of Jesus. In fact, the same word used to say that Jesus is the form of God is also used to say that Jesus is human. Not only human, but that he is a servant, a, a slave. Third, the hymn speaks to the atoning work of Jesus through the death. And there's a little bit of debate about whether the exaltation here is Jesus' resurrection or ascension. And I, I have got no skin in that um, debate. Either way, it's fine with me. But it speaks to Jesus' work through death and resurrection, maybe ascension. And fourth, the hymn speaks to the universal lordship of Jesus, that Jesus is Lord. And that someday, and what this means, I don't know. Uh, everyone will acknowledge this. Apparently, even those who have refused. At some point, everyone will confess this. All of these are doctrines we believe. All of these are doctrines that the early church believed. But again, I don't think that's really Paul's point. That's not how he's using this text. He's not teaching a workshop on how to get your theology right, but he's using a hymn, a poem, to show us how to treat each other right. I really believe the key idea in this hymn is in verse 6. You see, we can all assent to a list of doctrines and still not get along. We can all sign a statement of faith and say we agree about a list of facts, but still be divided. But in verse 6, we're told that Jesus did not use his equality with God. And again, here's where translations get tricky. Um, traditionally, like when I think about this verse, there's something in my head that says he thought it not robbery. So some older translations use that. I don't have a clue what that means. I guess I could think it through, but it sounds a little odd. At least today it does. Um, most more modern translations say something like he considered considered a, didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, okay, to be held on to. I think that gets closer to the point. What I really like here is the New Revised Standard Version. It says this, that he did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. 
Um, that's what this verb means. It means that Jesus didn't take his status as being equal with God as an excuse to use that status to manipulate for his own benefit. He didn't use that status and exploit it to fulfill his own interests. And that's what Paul is calling us to do through this hymn. You see, Jesus, his existence as fully God and fully human, those are facts about him. But it's his attitude, it's his mindset that we're called to imitate. Jesus is who he is. Notice here his exaltation by God and his recognition as Lord are results of his obedience. But his very obedience in the first place has everything to do with his attitude, with his mindset. His not using his status, his equality with God as something to be used for his own benefit. This is why Paul says we can have the same attitude or the same mindset as Jesus did. We can't change our existence. We are humans, right? And we can't raise or exalt ourselves, but we can, Paul says, put on the mind of Christ and imitate his attitude. So what is Jesus' attitude? It's this not grasping because of our status. It's not exploiting uh, a position or a power for the purpose or the benefit or the comfort or the quality of our own lives, but using our status, our abilities, our, our power, whatever we have, to pursue the benefit of others. Jesus' faithfulness to and through the cross came about as he trusted his Father for his vindication. I've been thinking all week about the relationship of this text to one of, this is a verse I just remember um, as a new Christian at the age of 13, like I, I knew it was important to read through the Bible at some point. And I had an NIV study Bible and in the front of the study Bible, it had like a read through the Bible plan and a little box you checked off. And for a while, like I was really eager, like I would do like more than one a day because that's the kind of student I was in school too, most of the time. And, uh, well, I would work way ahead and then not do anything for a really long time and end up behind, which is what I did in my Bible reading too. But I remember coming across this verse in John 4 where Jesus says, um, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. My food, what nourishes me, what gives me life, is doing the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Jesus models humility because he's not pursuing his own agenda. He's not pursuing his own comfort and ease and quality of life. But he's pursuing us. And we should do the same. Our food needs to be to do the will of the one who sent us and to complete his work. So what does this all mean for us? Uh, first of all, it means that unity doesn't come through some kind of program or through some kind of church strategy. Doesn't come from 
having a meeting and having everyone agree that we should be unified. It doesn't come by really having everything in common. Now, depending on where you live, um, you can search almost endlessly for a church to find one where everyone else sort of looks like you and acts like you, who listens and enjoys the same style of music as you do, who educate their children the same way that you do, who vote the same way that you do. Those places exist. But that's not unity. Paul says here that unity comes through humility. And humility comes by imitating Jesus. It's interesting that when many of us chose to follow Jesus, like if you had, like I had the sort of stereotypical Bible Belt, Southern Baptisty church experience where I was exposed to church my whole life, even though my family didn't go, but I was, you know, I went to a Christian daycare and went to vacation Bible school all the time. Um, everyone you, you knew were, were Christians. Um, and then I, I had sort of the church camp experience when I was 13 where um, where I prayed to receive Jesus and, and believe I did um, but you know what no one told me about this stuff <laughs> and I say it's a good thing because I can't imagine being able to do it apart from from the power of the Holy Spirit. When I signed up to be a Christian, I signed up like to be a better person. There were some habits that needed broken, some language that needed changed, some thoughts that needed erased. I knew there were some blessings. I knew I needed to be forgiven. And I really knew this was the kicker for me. Um, this was at a fellowship of Christian athletes. I don't know if any of you are familiar with that organization, but it's been around for a long time. We were at a retreat in Kerrville, Texas, and uh, it was one of these, if you died on the school bus on the way home, like where, where would you go? What would you do? If you're standing before the Lord, what would you say? I really didn't want to go to hell. All of these things, the breaking of habits, the blessings, the forgiveness, the avoidance of hell, like all of those things, like they are really good things. But no one told me that imitating Jesus was part of the deal. And like I said, maybe it was a good thing because I might have passed. Because I just can't imagine, right? I can't imagine doing that apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. Curtis wants control. I want my rights to be respected. I want my contributions to be acknowledged. I want to reach my goals and check off my lists. But God wants me to be faithful, to be obedient to his will. He wants me to put the interest of others before my own. My time, my money, my resources, my talents, my gifts, these are given to be used to serve, not to rule. 
Now, back to our little theology pop quiz. So imagine how you were feeling, right? You've got to, like, right now, write down what you believe about some really important things. Let's say God, Jesus, Holy Spirit, the Bible, salvation, and the second coming. Let's take those six things. You're going to write it down, and I'm going to read it out loud with your name on it. Okay? Just imagine how, how you're feeling. Maybe you're not nervous at all. Maybe you've known it so well for so long that you could quickly put something coherent down on paper. Maybe the church you grew up in, you can just spit out the Apostles' Creed. That would suffice for the most part. I thought about trying to do that this morning. I think I would miss, mess it up a little bit. But I never said the Apostles' Creed until we went to the Presbyterian Church. And we said it every, almost every Sunday for how long? Five years? Four? Yeah. And now it's, it's here. I haven't said it in almost three years, but I still, you know, it's there. If you could, it would probably look something like the doctrinal statement of many churches, even like the one for Hillside Bible Chapel. I think there's still some copies of it right out there, if anyone wants to take a look. So some of you might be feeling confident, but others of you might be feeling intimidated. I don't like that. I don't like when some people are confident and some people are fearful or intimidated. So I want to do something to make everyone feel the same way. I'm going to make us all feel intimidated and uncomfortable. So how about this? What if we have to communicate our beliefs? What if we have to give our personal doctrinal statement, but without words? You know, most church websites, in addition to the doctrinal statement, have a page of photos and videos. What would it be like to try to figure out what they believe about these really important things based on the photos or the videos or maybe a copy of the church budget, right? What would it be like if we tried to figure out their doctrine based on what the church is actually doing with feet on the ground where the rubber meets the road? What would it be like if someone tried to figure out what I believed by following me around for a week or two? Would it be obvious that I believe in a Jesus who humbled himself and trusted God for his exaltation and vindication? Would that be reflected in how I treat others? What would they determine based on how I treated others or how I used my resources about what I believe about God and all of these important issues. You know, I think what Paul is doing here by using a hymn, a poem in this passage, is that he is addressing a specific issue and how following Jesus' example resolves the issue because there's disunity in this church. He'll go on to address, he'll name names in a little while. There are people not getting along. 
He's using Jesus as the example of humility to help resolve this situation. But I think he's doing much more than this. I think he's got a much larger perspective. What Paul is doing for the Philippians and doing for us 2,000 years and 5,000 miles removed from this, he's encouraging us to put our poetry into motion. You know the figure of speech. Um, I'm not sure everyone, anyone's ever looked at anything I've done and said, that is poetry in motion. We usually use it of like graceful athletes or dancers. But I think like almost literally what Paul is doing is he's taking poetry and he's telling the, the church, put this into motion. God's calling us to proclaim our faith without just words in our actions and our deeds and our good works for which we were created. So I've got sort of two things for us to think about based on this passage. I think we get the unity part. I don't think we practice it, but I think we understand the facts of it. Um, and, I, and I hope we're on our way. I don't, I don't know anyone who probably, this is a hard, hard thing to do. But what I want to do is maybe look more at how Paul uses this from this larger perspective. So two things. Take what you believe. Maybe literally write it down this week. And if you're not sure where to start, you know, look at the church's doctrinal statement. Um, look at the Apostles' Creed. Write it down. Write down what you believe. And then consider how you do or how you could put that poetry into motion. Right? Because we can say we believe all kinds of things. But if someone asked us to prove it, what would we do? So take what you believe. Consider how you do or how you could put it into motion. Second, take what you do. How you treat others, how you treat yourself, how you use your time and resources, how you run your business, or your attitude toward your employer if you don't own your own business, or how you treat your children or your parents, how you think and act toward your neighbors. Take the sum total of, I mean, this is hard to do, right? We do a lot that we just don't think. But from sunrise to sunset, think of everything you do and ask yourself how others would interpret these into a statement of your faith. And not only that, but that's something the church needs to do. Because this isn't just about, you know, individuals. That'd be really interesting then if you went to a church website. Um, we don't have one, right? I mean, there's like hardly any internet here, so you know, and it's hard to get here. So it's not like, hey, I think that's a really cool looking church. Let's go visit. You know, charter a plane. Um, but what if instead, you know, the little tab that says statement of belief? What if you clicked on it and instead you see pictures? instead of text. 
What if instead of what looks like a summary of a research paper with extensive footnotes, you saw poetry in motion? What if you saw videos? You know, this church believes that all people are created in the image of God, and this is how we prove it. This is how our actions validate those beliefs and reflect them. So two questions. I kind of had two tasks, right? Take what you believe, consider how you can put it into motion. The second one was consider your actions. Even the mundane things you do day to day, how would someone else interpret those into a statement of faith? And then two questions. Is what is critical to your creed clear in your character? Is what is critical to your creed clear in your character? Are the most important things you believe ever put into motion? And the second question is similar to the first. Is what is different about your doctrine distinct in your deeds? Is what is different about your doctrine distinct in your deeds? Think of those who don't share your beliefs. If you didn't talk about them and you didn't write them down, would there be any obvious difference? So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord to help us put poetry into motion. Father, I'm just grateful that uh, so many years ago that um, I came across this text and ever since that, that you've used it um, so many different ways in my life. Um, it seems like mainly to point out where I need help where I need to improve, where I need your grace, and, and still do. Um, it's scary to think about what others would interpret about what I believe from the way I act most of the time. Uh, I don't know if that's true for all of us. For all of, those, uh, for all of us uh, who need help in that area, Lord, would you please give us your grace? Um, Remind us in, in whatever way will we'll speak to us and will wake us up to look to our Savior and His example. Rather than looking anywhere else for what our lives should look like. Uh, we wouldn't be here today if, if Jesus had not, if your Son had not um, considered others as others' interests and others' needs is more important than his own. And uh, it's in that grace we stand, and it's, it's in that grace that we, we depend. And uh, I, just, I just ask for your, uh, for your mercy and your patience with us as not only as, as, as individuals we, we try and fail, but even as a church. It, it, it's a hard thing, and it's very unnatural for us. But we know we, we don't depend on our natural abilities. But you have blessed us, each one of us, who, who follow you with the gift of your Holy Spirit. And, uh, and we need each other.
to carry out this task. So I pray that this would be a place uh, of encouragement in so many different ways, but especially a, a place where we can be encouraged to live in unity despite our diversity so that the, the watching world will know that our message is true and that we do this by looking to your son, Jesus, and the example he set before us. Um, thank you so much for your patience, for your love for us. Lord, we look forward uh, one day to, to, to being like your son completely. And make that true of us more and more every day until we reach that final day. And it's in your son's name that we ask all these things. Amen.